the appearance of a sea, into which five or six streets, like the mouths of so many rivers, disgorged their living streams. The waves of this sea, incessantly swelled by fresh accessions, broke against the angles of the houses, projecting here and there like promontories into the irregular basin of the Place. In the centre of the lofty Gothic façade of the palace, the grand staircase, with its double current ascending and descending, poured incessantly into the place like a cascade into a lake. Great were the noise and the clamour produced by the cries of some, the laughter of others, and the trampling of the thousands of feet. From time to time this clamour and noise were redoubled. The current which propelled the crowd toward the grand staircase turned back, agitated and whirling about. It might be a dash made by an archer, or the horse of one of the provost sergeants kicking and plunging to restore order. An admirable manoeuvre, which the provost bequeathed to the constabulary, the constabulary to the maréchaussée, and the maréchaussée to the present gendarmerie of Paris. Doors, windows, loopholes, the roofs of the houses swarmed with thousands of calm and honest faces, gazing at the palace and at the crowd, and desiring nothing more. For most of the good people of Paris are quite content with the sight of the spectators. Nay, a blank wall behind which something or other is going forward is to us an object of great curiosity. If it could be given to us mortals living in this year of grace to mingle in imagination with those Parisians of the fifteenth century, and to enter with them, shoved, elbowed, hustled, that immense hall of the palace, so straightened for room on the 6th of January, 1482, the sight would not be destitute either of interest or of charm, and all that we should see round us would be so ancient as to appear absolutely new. If the reader pleases, we will endeavour to retrace, in imagination, the impressions which he would have felt with us on crossing the threshold of the great hall amid this motley crowd coated, gowned, or clothed in the paraphernalia of office. In the first place, how one's ears are stunned with the noise, how one's eyes are dazzled. Overhead is a double roof of pointed arches, sealed with carved wood, painted sky-blue and studded with fleur-de-lis in gold. Underfoot, a pavement of alternate squares of black and white marble. A few paces from us stands an enormous pillar, then another, and another, in all seven pillars intersecting the hall longitudinally and supporting the thrust of the double-vaulted roof. Round the first four pillars are shops, glistening with glass and jewellery, and round the other three, benches worn and polished by the hose of the pleaders and the gowns of the attorneys. Along the lofty walls, between the doors, between the windows, between the pillars, is ranged the interminable series of all the kings of France ever since Faramont, the indolent kings with pendant arms and downcast eyes, the valiant and warlike kings with heads and hands boldly raised toward heaven. The tall, pointed windows are glazed with panes of a thousand hues. At the outlets are rich doors, finely carved and the whole, ceiling, pillars, walls, wainscot, doors, statues, covered 
from top to bottom with a splendid colouring of blue and gold, which, already somewhat tarnished at the time we behold it, was almost entirely buried in dust and cobwebs in the year of grace 1549, when Dubreuil still admired it by tradition. Now, figure to yourself that immense oblong hall, illuminated by the dim light of a January day, stormed by a motley and noisy crowd, pouring in along the walls and circling round the pillars. And you will have a faint idea of the general outline of the picture, the curious details of which we shall endeavour to delineate more precisely. It is certain that if Ravaillac had not assassinated Henri IV, there would have been no documents of his trial deposited in the Rolls' office of the Palace of Justice, and no accomplices interested in the destruction of those documents. Consequently, no incendiaries obliged, for want of better means, to burn the Rolls' office in order to burn the documents, and to burn the Palace of Justice in order to burn the Rolls' office. Of course, there would have been no fire in 1618. The old palace would still be standing with its old great hall. And I might then say to the reader, go look at it. And thus we should both be spared trouble, myself the trouble of writing, and him that of perusing, an indifferent description. This demonstrates the novel truth that great events have incalculable consequences. It is indeed possible that the accomplices of Ravaillac had no hand in the fire of 1618. There are two other plausible ways of accounting for it. First, the great star of fire, a foot broad and a foot and a half high, which fell, as everybody knows, from the sky upon the palace on the 7th of March after midnight. Secondly, this stanza of Théophile, Certes, ce fut un triste jeu quand à Paris, dame justice, pour avoir mangé trop d'épices, se mit tout le palais en feu. In Paris, twas but sorry sport when justice, prey to greediness, gorged upon bribes unto excess, and set on fire her own high court. Whatever may be thought of this threefold explanation, political, physical, and poetical, of the burning of the Palace of Justice in 1618, the fact of the fire is unfortunately most certain. Owing to this catastrophe, and above all to the successive restorations which have swept away what it spared, very little is now left of this elder Palace of the Louvre, already so ancient in the time of Philip the Fair that the traces of the magnificent buildings erected by King Robert and described by Hagaldus had then to be sought for. What has become of the Chancery Chamber where St. Louis consummated his marriage? The garden where he administered justice, habited in a camlet coat, a surcoat of linsey woolsey without sleeves, and a mantle over all of black serge, reclining upon carpets with Joinville? Where is the chamber of the Emperor Sigismond? Where that of Charles IV, that of John Lackland? Where is the flight of steps from which Charles VI promulgated his edict of amnesty? The slab whereon Marcel murdered, in the presence of the Dauphin, Robert de Clermont, and the Maréchal de Champagne, the wicket where the bulls of the antipope, Benedict, were torn in pieces, 
and whence those who had brought them were taken, coped and mitred in derision, and carried in procession through all Paris. The great hall, with its gilding, its azure, its pointed arches, its statues, its pillars, its immense vaulted roof cut and carved all over, and the gilded chamber, and the stone lion at the gate kneeling, with head lowered and tail between his legs, like the lions of King Solomon's throne, in the reverential attitude which befits strength in the presence of justice, and the beautiful doors, and the painted windows, and the chaste ironwork which discouraged Biscornette, and the delicate carvings of Duasi. What has time, what have men, done with these wonders? What has been given to us for all these, for all this ancient French history, for all this Gothic art? The heavy elliptic arches of Monsieur de Brosse, the clumsy architect of the porch of Saint-Gervais, so much for art. And as for history, we have the traditions of the great pillar, which still reverberates with the gossip of the Patrus. This is no great matter. Let us return to the veritable great hall of the veritable old palace. One of the extremities of this prodigious parallelogram was occupied by the famous marble table, hewn out of a single piece, so long, so broad, and so thick that as the ancient land-gods say, in a style that might have given an aptitude to Gargantua, never was there seen in the world slice of marble to match it. And the other by the chapel, where Louis the Eleventh placed his own effigy kneeling before the Virgin, and to which, reckless of leaving two vacant niches in the file of royal statues, he removed those of Charlemagne and St. Louis.